All right, hello there. Welcome to Nevermind the Podcast. This is our inaugural episode. We'll be choosing artists to showcase how we feel they develop their overall sound and attitude with our take on who influenced them. First up, let's introduce ourselves, being that this is our first outing. What's that cartoon? The one? <laughs> no, stop it. The Hello, Dad. That's what you sounded like. It's not Scooter Doo. This is yeah. I think you're still in cartoon mode. Uh, it's supposed to be about music, but you and your fucking cartoon dreams and fantasies. I'm doing voiceover. Oh my god. Uh, well, my name is Patrick Butterworth, uh, a long, uh, lifelong music fan lover. Uh, Played drums in a bunch of different bands and been doing that for years. Uh, so definitely have. Uh, an opinion about music, and um, I'm excited to see what we're going to do with this. I think it's uh, it's going to be uh, interesting to see how we put all these things together, what we're trying to do. And um, most of my, I guess, my background of being influenced itself and listening to music was because of having an older brother that just brought that much more music into my life. And that's Chris. And I'm the older brother, just music fan extraordinaire never really played in a band used to play a little bit of music here and there growing up um but just a lover of all music all genres all styles since i was a little little kid and uh today we're going to talk about we're going to discuss um what we have derived of the influencers for Nirvana's major label debut, Nevermind. It was released in September of 1991. Butch Vig was at the helm for production, and it was released on DGC Records. Yeah, so then I think, like, this whole album, it's like, it's basically just a pop album, you know? It's... It's like pop songs with with an edge. There's like really, really big guitars, lots of distortion, huge rhythm section. Um, but overall, it's it's pretty polished. Like it doesn't like it sounds like, you know, like like a punk rock band that got put through the ringer with the producer that ended up with, you know, an album that was going to be able to be played on the radio, which it was. Like super catchy hooks, uh, l- lyrics are really really easy to digest and and uh, for the for the public, you know, like it, it, he wasn't singing in code and he wasn't writing lyrics to like be profound. It was just just talking about you know punk ethos, yeah, like that, like like things that were easily relatable. And I think that's probably what helped make that album crossover so well. Um, and uh, I. Th- and then there's there's also that like that lazy punk rock attitude where some of the some of it's like just kind of breathy and spoken. Some of the lyrics are screaming, you know. So it's it's kind of all over a certain map. And I think the forefront, or maybe not forefront, but the forefathers of this particular album that we think, in our opinion, are bands like the Replacements, the Pixies, the Wipers, Sonic Youth. The Melvins and like almost everybody, the Beatles, the fucking Beatles. So this is 1991, September. I'm about to be. Tw- I'm a few months shy of being 21. So what? What does that make you? 
15? Yeah, well, I was in, I just started high school. Like, you, I was... Were you 15? Mm, no, I don't know 16. if I was 15. I think I might have been, wait, 91? If I graduated, 93. No, I was like no, 15. No, 16. 15. 16. You were born in 75, 91. That's but 16. September 91. Yeah, August and then September. No. Oh, well, whatever. Yeah, you were 16. But what, basically what I'm getting at is, did you like this album? I didn't hate it. I didn't love it though. I didn't. I didn't freak out about it. I guess I kind of feel the same way I feel now, where I don't ever have to listen to it. But when I do, I mean, I like the songs. Like it's they're they're catchy. They kind of they're really really pleasing to the ear. You know the way the production is. But I don't think they were a band. And it, it it might have a lot to do with my first initial reaction to the single, which and I still don't. I don't really like Smell Like Teen Spirit. And I think we're trying to like go through this album. We were talking about it before, and we're we're kind of not talking about that song in particular, because um, I don't think it's a good representation of the album. I don't think it's poppy. I don't think it. You think it, it's the weakest song? Maybe not the weakest, but I don't think it. I don't think it says Nirvana like all the other songs do. You know, like all the other songs have. I don't know. I guess it's just it's not catchy to me. Like I don't like that riff. I don't like the I think it's really lazy. I think it's like like uh like almost like we're going to talk about Sonic Youth. Like Sonic Youth uh Dirty I think came out after this. And what's their hit off that? Remember 100% it was or Sugarcane? 100%. 100%. So like that song like it sounds like a joke song. And I remember when I first heard that song like I was like Sonic Youth this feels this seems like a band that I should be listening to because already the name's catchy and because they had the credibility you know they they put out that movie 91 punk the year the punk broke and they were kind of like the big bigger band With than like Dinosaur Jr. Nirvana Nirvana was supporting them on that tour yeah, yeah so they were like the big brother band but I remember when that video came out it was all over the place and I remember seeing it and I was like this band sucks because I didn't like it, but... I don't think I could picture the video. I think it was just uh, like a Whoa, dirty apartment. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no, I'm thinking of Sugar King. That was the one with Chloe Sevigny. She's like a runway model in like a department store. I don't think I ever saw that video. Yeah, it's actually kind of a cool video because it's like eight millimeter film. It's not like, it's not, it's like super it's grungy, like dirty, low budge student film. Yes. Yeah. So that's good that you bring that up because... So me saying like, yeah, that's the first song I, I saw, the 100% or whatever. And like that song, it just, it sounds like a band that doesn't even know how to play. And that's probably like their seventh album. Yeah. <laughs> so that was my first initial like introduction to that band. Kind of like what smells like Teen Spirit. And I just thought it sucked. But then if you listen to the rest of that Sonic Youth album, like Sugar Cane, that's a fucking perfect pop song. Yeah. That song's great. So Sonic Youth was formed 10 years before Nevermind came out. They had actually released six records by... Yeah, they had already put out Daydream Nation and Goo, like all their big things yeah. that made them who they are. I don't know if Washing Machine's on that list. That's way after. Or uh, No, Washing Machine's way after. Sister? It's a fucking one. I can't think of the name. Mm-hmm. But anyways, like... Uh, oh, I can't take that right now. Um, I, but you know what I mean? Like, that, I like Smells Like Teen Spirit. Like, if you listen to everything else but that album... It's great. But that song... They're totally different. I was... 
like I said, I was 20. If it came out in September, I think somebody put it on a party. I didn't really care for it. And then we bought the CD, took it to a friend's house and played it and started to like really, really absorb it a lot more, listen to it. And then the December of that year, they opened for the Chili Peppers and I was at that show. Yeah, we went. It was Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam. Them and the Red Ox Who Bears at the LA Sports right. Arena. I missed Pearl Jam, but I saw Nirvana and Chili Peppers. And I think seeing them live made me like them more than I liked the album. I think they had like a presence, especially for me, it was a lot of Dave Grohl. Dave Grohl really was the impressive one of the group to me. Yeah. I remember that show and I didn't, I mean, I thought they sounded good. I think it was just too big for them. Like it was, they're not like a, even though that's what they turned into after, they didn't seem like an arena rock band. Like they yeah. didn't, there was just three dudes on a stage, a big giant, like. Bass player? <laughs> like what, what is it? What do they call those? Uh, not ape, but it's like. <laughs> Neanderthal, Druid, yeah, like he something like that. Like he was just, he, it didn't. They didn't even look like, like you know how now every band, it's like they have to be kind of, it's like this package. And like the Hives, for instance, like they all are the same height and they all wore the same outfit. And it's, it almost seems like there was a certain jump. I don't know, maybe in the early two thousands when music just got so over commercialized, where. You just see people on the street, and it's like, oh, they look like they're in a band. Like, Nirvana didn't look like a band to me. It was, like, three dudes that maybe just met, and then they just decided to play like together. three stoners that were squatting in an apartment that found instruments or something? <laughs> maybe, like, I don't know. But I didn't think that they commanded the audience. Uh, then again, too, they kind of just got thrown right into it, like out of nowhere you know like right. that re record came out and then they started winning like all the awards and then they started playing bigger tours and um but anyways like it didn't necessarily make me like them any more or less it was kind of just like i don't know they're but i don't know so let's talk about the songs so the first one that's that's catchy for me is In Bloom. And as far as I, I mean, I, like I said, I'm not a musician, but for me, it sounds like it's just, it's a s simple single time signature. There's some pitch shifts that have kind of given an anthemic vibe. And in the vein of the Pixies, the way Frank would kind of talk sing and then get into kind of more of a yell um i feel like that <clears throat> like that could be a total pixie song like the swaying back and forth you know the the what do you call that is it a crescendo when it goes up in volume well we're just like when the pitch goes from like uh, nah, nah, and then ah, you know what i mean like what do you call that when like the time because the time doesn't change no it's not a crescendo it's just I don't know. It's just uh, it's just a simple buildup, but it doesn't change anything as far as the structure of the song. Yeah, yeah. The Pixies did that. They did that where it's it's like an attention grabber. It's like you know, like you you have a quiet part of the song, and then you, typically it's like your verse is quiet, and then your chorus is big and loud. And I think 
Nirvana probably learned that from the Pixies where, you know, every, every song, there's some songs that have hooks everywhere, but then typically the hook is in the chorus and the Pixies were like masters of just having these big hooky choruses where the volume was like lifted too. They probably even did like, like work in the studio to make their choruses sound different than the verses, you know, by just boosting it, whether they're using like, like a little, um, a little boost box that basically all the signal goes through and it's just digitally manipulating it it up. Well, I think they probably were doing analog using analog stuff. So I don't necessarily think that it's digital. Uh, but this is this was made in the advent of CDs. This is before. But they probably made this to tape, though. No, no, no. I'm saying I'm sure they recorded it to tape. But as far as like mastering, like they mastered it probably for a CD that can hold the higher range than, and it clips. It would clip. Yeah, that's where those boxes come in. Right. They start pushing it to the maximum levels before. When it was all analog, nobody really did that. Nobody was really doing... Yeah, well, I don't think the technology existed. Yeah. But, yeah, like, the that song, it is. It's like, it's... There's almost some of these songs on this record where the bands that we feel influence them, it's like, if you just change the voice, it could be the song by that band. You know? Right, right. Like, like, if Paul Westerberg from The Replacements sang... Uh, what's that song? Um breed breed like if you put if you put paul westerberg's vocals over breed that could be a replacement song just because of the way the structure is and i feel like you know i i doubt that nirvana wasn't listening to all these bands especially a band like the wipers i mean they're from they're kind of like pioneers of the northwest punk rock sound you know like, or the almost not punk sound <laughs> yeah like i mean you listen to it you listen to those records and it's it's some of it's hard to believe that it was that early like yeah. that it was 1980 because it sounds like like if whatever you want to call college rock that they they were just looking for terms at the time we were growing up like in the 90s you know like pavement, there was never there like, was never an alternative college section. rock being like the pavements dinosaur junior sebado lou barlow yeah yeah, and all the precursors to that is like, you know, like the Smithereens, R.E.M., even Husker Du, you know, replacements, like all those bands. I would say that even that we can even add a seventh and say Husker Du has a little bit of influence here, too. Oh, definitely. Because yeah. they're, they're kind of that prime example, too. Like, some of, their, some of their songs are just punk rock, but they have, like... Sweetness. Just... Yeah, they're just they they got those candy like chords if yeah. you want to call it. Not I was gonna say the Descendants, but Descendants is is, is their own thing. Descendants is is uh, I wouldn't say an influencer on Nirvana, even though you could probably find similarities. But going back to like Husker Du, um, like that was the birth of all that like college radio. You know, I think. I remember we used to get, what was that one magazine? Um, not Spin. There was one of those magazines, though, back then, where they was, would have... I think it was Spin. They would have, like, or even in Rolling Stone, too, even though it wasn't a big Rolling Stone advocate. I think Spin was the alternative college rock 
Rag. There was also like Tower Records had their own magazine that had yeah. a lot of that in there. But remember, because they had like the Billboard Hot 100, they yeah. had Top 40, but then they started having this column where it was college radio. Yeah. It's like, when did people start paying attention to wanna, college radio disc jockeys? I want to say that was Spin. It could have been. I want to say it was, or, or, uh, Melody Maker or one of those. Well, no, Melody Maker is UK, right? I think so. Yeah. Cause it, yeah, cause Herb, Herb was like what newspaper that did mostly. Well, it was hip hop, wasn't it? Hip hop and, and electronic. Dance music. Yeah. So I think it was Spin. Yeah. I think it was Spin. Um, so we touched on the Pixies, we touched on replacements, touched on the Wipers. And then for me, a lot of what I, you know, we talked about Sonic Youth. I think that the Melvins, which probably came out around the same time as them, I think they had a few albums before this, but a lot of what the Melvins were doing, because I don't remember how popular the Melvins were, but to me, it seemed like no one knew who they were. Like, yeah. you really had to know underground music to know who the Melvins were, mm-hmm. even though they were making music contemporaneously, you know, with Nirvana. Yeah. And everybody fucking knew who Nirvana was. Nobody did not know Nirvana. The they time. also, everybody knew them almost like at the turn of a hat, though. Yeah. Because, like, I remember, too, when that album came out, like... Well, I think MTV had a huge... Well, it was that video. For, that video, yeah. See, and that's hard for us because we didn't have MTV. We didn't have MTV till a few years after that. Yeah. So, like, there was no frame of reference of other than just being music fans and, like, finding out, you know, which bands to go grab their records. I remember years back, if you think about, like, this, and this is, what, maybe 1985, 86, when Master of Puppets came out. That 86 is record. Master of Puppets. I remember when you bought that record. You bought that record, I think... I don't know if it was still Sam Goody or if it was there. You remember that store in the mall? It used to be, it wasn't video concepts. It was some other store. Well, it was licorice pizza. No, nah, not that far back. And then it, it was turned Sam into, Goody. um, what was before Sam Goody? I can't remember. Cause didn't you work there too? Yeah, I worked there. So, I, got, I got fired. So let's just, of course you did. <laughs> so well, I worked at the warehouse first. No, no, no. But I'm talking about in the mall because I remember you bought that record. It wasn't a Sam Goody first. It was like Music Express or Music. Music, Well, I know there was Music Plus, but I don't think it was Music Plus. Was it? Yeah, that's it. So then I remember going in there and seeing the end cap and they had Metallica, uh, Master Puppets, vinyl. And I remember you bought it. And I remember going to because I think what was I in like fourth third or fourth grade maybe fifth grade and I remember back then too remember there was like hit parader and circus magazine so that was yeah. the way that you found out about heavy metal um this is all pre no MTV um and I remember that record was getting around and people were knowing who Metallica was but it took so long and with Nirvana it was almost like it was almost like going to school one weekend, you know, it's the weekend and then you go home on weekends and then you either talk to your friends or you just all oh, see you next week, you know, whatever. And then it was almost like you came back and like everybody knew who Nirvana was. So what we like today, people, they call it like a viral video. So yeah. they were like the first viral band. Like you couldn't get away. Well, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan well, was probably the bigger viral yeah. 
people, but yeah, the same. But I mean, in 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 our contemporary times, like my friends knew who the Misfits were, but I can go to school and ask a hundred people, and they wouldn't know who exactly. Misfits were. But nerds, people who played sports, people who were not popular, people who were popular, didn't matter what. I mean, if you were a dude who just listened to hip hop, you knew who Nirvana was. Even rappers were would you know reference Nirvana. Yeah. That was they were just a huge impact on the music world. That, yeah, and that, didn't they win the Grammy and they won like I don't even remember if they won Grammy. They probably were won like MTV awards. When all those things I guess meant more than yeah. they do now. Um but that's also I think everyone watched that stuff back then, you know. Um and maybe that's just because there was less things to hold your attention back then. Right. But anyways That was the beginning of the of the distraction going back to <laughs> yeah to the melvins though like they probably were directly influenced by the melvins of this list of bands because they probably were playing shows with them right you know if they're if they're a working band up there in you know yeah. washington state or you olympia know, or whatever then you get to well i think it was aberdeen like in particular but, but i mean where they played shows was like olympia Seattle. Seattle. I'm sure there are fans of like K Records and um, the whole like Riot Girl scene. Because who is the girl who Kathleen who named the who named the that's a singer from Bikini Kill, and she's the one who came up with "Smells Like Teen Spirit." Anyway, well, the name they wrote it on a wall at a party, and it was because the deodorant. Yeah, that's what it was. (laughs) But um, and I think she's married to Ad Rock right now. But you listen, I think so too. Well, they're in, I just saw them in a movie together. It was something. Yeah, I think they're married now. Um, but they, um, well, they're in the Joan Jett uh, documentary, which is pretty good if you haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. Um, they, uh, if you think about all the other, they had to have been rubbing shoulders and playing shows with like Soundgarden and like Mud Honey. Uh, Pearl Jam. Well, I think Mud Honey, Alice in Chains. Like, Mud Honey was on the tour with them and Sonic Youth, weren't they? I don't know. I think probably. Yeah. Um, and if yeah, I think Kurt looks like the singer from Mud Honey. Kind of. Well, then that's that's <laughs> probably where they got some of their fashion too. Like you know, but whatever. I mean, that's yeah. all you know. But going back to like how they sounded, um, like you listen to you know the Wipers and the Replacements. It's like. It's like sometimes dissonant chords, melancholy sounds, but like urgency and and big crunchy guitars and, you know, someone that could actually sing. Right. You know, so we were talking about that earlier, too. Like Kurt Cobain doesn't really sing. He screams. But there's also, though, like there's something about his voice that is musical. And it's like it either it definitely works for what they did. But. For me, it's like it's almost on that borderline of of disliking it, which I don't. But it's almost like like Neil Young. It took me a while. Not that I don't like Neil Young's songs, but it's like I can't listen to that voice all day. Like mm. it makes me sick. There's something about the timbre that it's just like it's it's like on the edge of oh my god, this is annoying. Yeah, and see, because I was you know already listening to all those other bands, Soundgarden. Stone Temple Pilots was big. Alice in Change was big. Everyone was trying to sing, kind of the same. Except actually, I don't think Chris Cornell sounded like those guys. He, I guess he did he's, a few he's like a metal singer. Yeah, yeah, but 
that Eddie Vedder, what's the Stone Temple Pilots singer guy? Scott Whalen. Scott Whalen. They all did something where they couldn't, they actually sang in a key that almost didn't register. It's almost like this, like. It's because they're talk singing. Yeah, it's like a deep, it's like when you have a deep voice and you can hold a note. And I think Kurt did that with that Paul Westerberg kind of like edge to it where it was like. He didn't have a deep enough voice to yeah, carry it. Yeah, he was it. in a different so register was, altogether. Yeah, like he's almost trying to do the same thing that they're doing, but definitely not in the same fashion. He wasn't trying to do, like, put you in a mood. And but you know what I mean? Like, you listen to, like, a Stone Temple Pilot song, like, what's that? One where he's talking about the dogs and shit. I don't even know the name of it. <laughs> anyway, know. he's putting you in a mood. He's like, and his voice is totally working to make you feel that way. Yeah. And Kurt, he doesn't. He's, like, singing about you know, something completely different, like teen angst and what have you, but his voice can't get as high as Frank Black's and his voice can't get as low as Eddie Vedder's. So he's writing that, that like line in between them two. So I can see where you're like, yeah, I kind of don't like his voice, but it works. Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably what he was just doing was like, okay, well we have this band writing these songs. He obviously knew what style he was going for. And that's how to me, it's like when you break down their song writing, it's like the Beatles, you know? It's like pretty pretty verses, pretty chorus, and then, oh, let's throw a weird chord in there or two just to, uh, just to fuck things up a little bit, to make us seem smart or whatever. And probably also to just keep themselves entertained because, you know, when you're writing songs, like, you don't want to just, you don't want to bore yourself to death and fall asleep in the studio. Um, but I, but you're talking about like Scott Whalen and Stone Temple Pilots, who I despise that band. They came out after. It's almost like it seems like they were the first band that capitalized instantly on their coattails. Yeah, because like Pearl Jam was already playing. All those bands were already playing. It's like Nirvana broke out. I don't know when the movie Singles came out, but that was a definite another big like almost like a like an affirmation like these bands are already big but now we're really going to say that this whatever we're going to call it grunge is grunge. is something to right, be right. contended with you know because at that point like you have like Alice in Chains Soundgarden Mudhoney was already like they're never going to be big like they were already like one of the you know how there's like there's like punk rock and there's like the Stooges the MC5 and then it leads up to all these things that lead up to the Sex Pistols like all the the pioneers like if anything mud honey was like a pioneer band that was never going to get as big as these other bands um but stone temple pilots coming after they probably did rip off nirvana and scott whalen maybe had a wider range but was like okay well let's let's sing in this kind of style for this particular song and let's get this lazy you know Eddie Vedder, I don't think, could just sing worth the shit anyway. Like, he doesn't even seem like he could fucking talk. Um, <laughs> like, he just sounds... He sounds the way he looks, and it's just misery. Like, whatever. So you're not a fan of Pearl Jam? No, I fucking hate that band. See, and I like Pearl Jam. I remember refusing to see them at that 91 show in December where they opened for the Chili Peppers. I remember being like, just... I can't remember the name of the first album or the first song that was big. It was I'm Alive. Okay. And that song's awful. I hated that song. I mean, hated it. And I refused to go see that band. I, ref you know, drank beers in the parking lot on purpose to avoid seeing that band. 
But the album that came out after that one, I started to like the one with the sheep head or whatever. Versus? The Is that Versus? Yeah, and I actually liked that album, and I liked the albums that they made after. And I actually went back to listen to the first album. There's a few songs on there that I'm okay with, but I definitely hate that Alive song. Like, yeah, I and see, that's how it like, smells like Teen Spirit. It's like almost, well, maybe not all of them. Cause I don't remember Soundgarden. I remember liking Soundgarden through and through, but that's probably because they had that like metal See, you know, edge I, or whatever. I remember Soundgarden in high school. We had who was it? Nancy, my friend Nancy. She had one of their albums, and I loved. Can't even remember the name of the song. It's like, oh, hands all over, and that was like in the eighties. That came out in the eighties, and I really, really liked. I I think it was more. That guy, the guitar player, mm-hmm. and the thing, you know, Chris Cornell, to me, I just, I like the way he does everything. I like his voice, I like his songwriting, I like all that. Well, he's the only real singer out of these Did bands. Didn't one of your friends... Think about it. Wasn't one of your classmates related to the drummer of Soundgarden? Matt Cameron? Yeah. Is that his name? No, I don't I think thought somebody so. went to Gar. I no. thought. You're talking about Chris Mendoza oh. and related to the drummer of the Silver Sun Pickups. I think... <laughs> I don't know anybody that's related to him. I thought it was the guy from Soundgarden. No. Anyway. Um, but yeah, the, the 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 offshoot bands, you know, unfortunately happened. Um, going back now and listening to Nirvana t- 30 years later. It's been 20, 30 years? 28 years? Wait, 91? 91, 2019. It's going to be 2021 in a little bit. So it's 18 years... 18 years later. No, 28. It's almost going to be 30 years. 28 That's years later. That's crazy. So listening to it now, 28 years later, for me, this album still holds up. Oh, yeah. It's like, a classic album. I I play it. I introduce my kids to it. I, you know, my son, who listens to The Strokes more than anything, he likes some of the songs. And I remember he'll hear some of them. He's like, oh, I know this song. It's Nirvana. You know, like... Three generations or two generations later, there's kids that are still picking this up and listening to it. Well, yeah, it's, it's classic. It's not going to go anywhere. It's it's going to be remember. It's going to go down as one of the best records of all time. Right, and it should because you know, if you think about the whole team, you know, you have the the producer, the 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 engineers, the guys who mixed it, the actual songs themselves had to be good in the first place. You can't make. You can't make magic, you know, in the studio without fucking something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that's why, like, with me, like, I, again, I I wouldn't consider myself a fan of the band. I definitely have respect for them because I like some of the, I mean, the songs are undeniable, you know, with the exception of a, a song here or two. But I'm sorry, if you could make... How many songs are on the record? 12? 12 songs. If you could make a, an album with 12 songs sound like you, like it's not like, you know, some bands, may, they might have an album where it's like, okay, you can tell they were trying to make a song that sounds like this. You could tell they were trying to make a song that sounded like that. Like they seem like they were just in the moment and were like, this is, this is what, these are the songs we have. This is what we sound like. And every song in my opinion except one smells like teen spirit 
they're good. Like that's an album you could put on from start to finish. And if you think about it, you go back and you look into your record collection, how many records do you really have that you can listen to front to back and not be cringing at one of them where you're just, ah, oh, let me skip, you know? Right. Not that many. Um, it's, and a, like, it's a complete out. Yeah. And like kind of going back, because I, I was thinking about this, like uh, going back to like thinking about Pearl Jam and how bad Eddie Vedder is. Like the music too, to me, it's like, it's like bad Aerosmith with someone who can't sing. That's what Pearl Jam is to me. Anyways, another reason. Next episode, we're going to review Pearl Jam's. <laughs> Pat's favorite album, Pearl Jam's Versus. I fucking hate them. So, so we disagree on one thing. Smells like Teen Spirit since we didn't want to talk about it. I'm going to bring it up. The riff. I think it sounds like they ripped off Boston's more than a feeling. You don't, you think it's just coincidence. But on the, um, the baseline, I don't even know what you call that part. We think, or we both conclude that the uh, the song "Come as You Are" was a straight lift of Killing Joke's '80s. That's yeah, one thing we agreed upon. That's like common, like everybody, for the most part. But there's I a think lot there of kids, was even a lawsuit about that. But there's a lot of kids that don't even know who Killing Joke is. <laughs> yeah. And that too could be that could be a coincidence. Uh, I think the thing with with the smells like Teen Spirit, the the guitar riff sounding like more than a feeling by Boston. I I hear the rhythm of it, but the notes are so different that I I feel like it's completely different. Because then if you're getting into this, and this is me, like you know, coming from a musician's uh, uh, point of view, is you're going to run out of rhythmic patterns after a while. You know, if you listen to like, if you listen to anything by Motown, I mean, how many of those songs have the same drum beat? We're just talking about rhythm. First. Right. Yeah. And then you get into strumming patterns because now music gets a little bit more complicated when you add melody, you know, because rhythmically you can't play, you can't technically play notes on drums, but that is setting the precedent for what is going to be put on top of it. Right. And there's only so many beats that, you know, exist in pop music um, when you really think about it. But you don't think about the beat as much as you think about the melody because that's when you, you know, how are you going to say, oh, well, this sounds just like that. Um, like, what was that song earlier that we found... We've actually found one song that sounded like another song that sounded like another song. So we're talking about Breed, which is on the Nevermind album. And oh, yeah, oh I'm sorry, 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 sorry. Not Breed. Uh, Stay Away. So the song Stay Away. That's like the fast yeah. kind of punk rock song. So here's a sample. And then we're saying that it sounds like this song by The Wipers. I mean, clear as day. It sounds Over the much. Edge. That's Over the Edge. Yeah. And then the wipers, which that was what? Uh, what was that wipers like record? 1980. And then we're talking about the wipers. That song from the wipers actually sounding like an older song by the Dickies called Give It Back, which is a couple years older in like 79, I believe. Yeah, it almost like, like rhythmically and the notes almost sound like a carbon copy. Like a straight lift. Yeah. <laughs> But they're all good, and because those bands, 
like it's because their singers all sing different it's because they're you know all the elements that make those bands what they are you can play them in order to me you can hear similarities but they're also like the Dickies don't sound like Nirvana, don't sound like the Wipers. The Wipers definitely do not sound like the Dickies. But Nirvana but they sound sounds like, like... Yeah, so it's yeah. it's weird. Um, but... Um, and we don't even know if it's, like, consciously done. Like, was the guys in the... Was, I don't even know the guy's name. But the Wipers, were they... They had a really good chance of having a Dickies record in their collection. Well, of course. But, I mean, when you write songs, too, it's almost like... I don't know if this is going to make sense, but you know how like right now, lots of people or maybe a few years back, people are like having ideas for apps. And if someone's like, oh man, like, wouldn't that be cool if there was an app that could, you know, like you could just order groceries and then they fucking come to your house. Like whoever actually made that work was probably not the first person that thought that. Right. So it's almost like, you know, if you think of an app and you're just like, fuck, it already exists. That's how songwriting is sometimes. You could be making a riff and then you go and you show it to your band and then your fucking bass player says, oh, are we going to be a cover band now? Because this sounds like that. And then you're just like, God damn it. I didn't know it sounded like that because I never fucking heard that. Right. But that is bound to happen. And I think... What is that? There's dog violence. (laughs) Something's being attacked right now. There's probably... They're probably listening to Pearl Jam out there. (laughs) I let them borrow my Pearl Jam records. Um, The dog hates it. Yeah, I think like... I think like... If you know your musical references by what you hold in your head is your musical library of reference. So, like, even though we grew up similarly, you know, we're only five years apart. The things that I've continued to keep listening to, I hear different things in them. You've, you know, you make music, so you have different things inside your head. Mm-hmm. I think that could be like if subconsciously he came up with the with the riff that mimicked the Boston song it doesn't sound like he was maybe ripping it off but it's so close and it's just a few notes off you know I think what I think Jimmy Page did that a lot I think Jimmy Page had a lot of like blues riffs that were like well he straight up lifted yeah, stuff he straight yeah. up lifted them but there's a lot of other Led Zeppelin songs where it's just like he, there's he, because he listens to so much of that blues mm-hmm. even when he was trying to come up with riffs yeah well, he, had, he had to stumble upon something that sounded like this. And that's kind of like, not in Nirvana's case, because they weren't around that long, but that's kind of like, like the Ramones, you listen to their later stuff, they're like a Ramones cover band. <laughs> because, and it's not so much that it's like, oh, well, like, I'm going to bite my own style, but I'm sure, you know, Johnny Ramone, the way he plays, he has a certain sound. And if Dee Dee was writing most of those songs, it's like, okay, well, how am I going to change these three chords again? And like you listen to the Ramones and there's so many songs where, but that's why they sound the way they do. But they almost become not a parody of themselves, but like they just sound like themselves, you know, like eventually they probably ran out of, of, of song of, I mean, how many times, how many different ways? And if you don't think about mathematically, because then you can, you know, it's probably infinite, but like, how do you jumble those three chords? Not just the notes, but where you get that extra edge on like, I'm, I'm doing Rubik's Cube, I don't know why, but rhythm adds the extra thing, you know, because you can have, okay, say you're working with 
uh, three chords. You're doing uh, G, E, B. And it's, okay, write a song with those three chords. You could go G to B to E or G to, to B, G to E to B or G to B to E or start with B, whatever. There's lots of different right. configurations. But then when you add the rhythm and then you're, is this going to be fast? Is it going to be slow? Um, that's the way that you can kind of just jumble it up, you know? Um, and yeah, like the, the more than a feeling, that rhythm, if you listen, there's like, you listen to, what's that other song? Um, uh, I want to say Heart. Barracuda? Uh, no, not Barracuda. Um, I don't know. It's a, it's a common like rhythmic chord progression, regardless okay. of what chords you're choosing. But who knows? I mean, he could have been he could have been listening to that when he made that song. And regardless, I don't like that song. I think <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's the weakest song on that. I think the album's great. Like, and you know what? If maybe if that wasn't the first song I heard by them, maybe my relationship with that band would have been a little different. So, you know, I have a pretty hazy memory from. <laughs> Drink, drinking a lot of soda and eating a lot of Fruit Loops. Uh, a, apparently, I had seen Nirvana before that '91 show at Jabberjaw, and it was during the time that Bleach was out. So I don't even think Dave Grohl was in the band at that time. But they were—I don't remember. It's—it's it's so immemorable to me. And even if I had, like, if I listen to Bleach. I only listen to Bleach now because I know the what they did on Nevermind and In Utero. But if I just if they only had put if I had been aware of Bleach and listened to Bleach, I don't think I would have ever even gone to buy Nevermind. I don't think anything on Bleach indicated what Nevermind was going to be. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, like just from a listener standpoint, you know what I mean. Like there's some people that can like. You know, like a Soundgarden record progressed into the super, you know, the the two or three before super unknown. You knew that that was going to be something because the first couple records were leading up to it. To me, Bleach is like a one-off. Like I don't think anything on there indicates what's going to come. What's going to come? And maybe the 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 amalgamation of Butch Vig with you know the engineers that they chose and the studio that they were in maybe everything just came together to make nevermind and you know because what if nevermind was bleach part two you know that that would be like going down the sonic youth albums you could have six sonic youth albums and the only ones that's when they started to stand out was on hundred was uh dirty you know the ones before that they all had the same tone they all had the same well yeah that has to do with the money behind it right but there was also something where I mean, Nirvana had those songs, though. And I doubt there was that much producing going on, meaning I don't think Butch Big or anyone else was in there telling them how to rearrange the, the songs. I think they had them already. Because otherwise, why would they have... I think they were trying to get... I think they were trying to stay with Sub Pop, but Sub Pop didn't have enough money. That was a really weird time for labels back then. That's when the big guys were just either eating up all the little guys, the initial phases of that, or there was lots of the, those, like, subsidiary labels where it's like... Like, because even DCG was a subsidiary of Geffen. 
So it was like, they're almost making these small labels to look so that it was, it gave them like street credibility. Mm. Like, oh, this is Matador. You know, this is where you get all your college rock bands on this label, but really they're from Epic or whatever, you know? I remember there was a, I had this Maximum Rock and Roll magazine and it gave the breakdown of how there was really only like four companies. There was like- Well, like Warner Electric Atlantic. Yeah, there was only like- Yeah. And then you start going down the branches and then you see like, like fucking, this this label's not even a real independent label. You right. Know? It's it's like how how you go to a market now and everything's fucking organic. It's the same thing. Like, well, I think I was yeah I was I remember I was working on a magazine around this time, and we were going we were I was selling ads to the mag for the magazine and going to these labels, and whenever you'd get the person's card, like we went to Maverick, we went to Madonna's oh, yeah. label right there on Beverly. And, you know, you go in and they have their own building separate and you go there and then you get the guy who's in charge his card and it says something else. It's like, yeah, I don't know. I don't remember who it was, but it was a whole, it was the parent company. Yeah. And you're just like, I thought I was at Maverick. And What's you're like, name? well, they're owned by this company, so it's just bullshit. You remember just a few years later, too, you get albums or CDs and there's like, fif- not 15, that's an exaggeration, but there's like three different. It's like, well, who put this out? Right, because they were it's putting like the Polygram, Warner BMG, Brothers, Reprise. Yeah. Like, they were even putting the publishing people on there too. And all the records before, it was like you get Led Zeppelin albums. They kind of started too because like the early Led Zeppelin albums, they're all on Atlantic. But then by the time Physical Graffiti comes out, because they have their own label, now it's Swan Song with Atlantic, distributed by Atlantic. Yeah. yeah, that's when everything started getting all crazy. Kiss did that with Casablanca. But then yeah, and then the the. The nineties, yeah. the mid nineties, that's when it's it was just getting crazy. Yeah. Um but what also would you, going, what, what would you rate this album? One to ten. One I'd say nine because it's a it's it's an undeniable classic. So if there was eleven songs minus smells like teen spirit, it would be a ten. <laughs> I would still say nine because again, like I don't love it. Like, but nine's hot. It it's undeniable though. Okay, I I can't. I can't. I would say it's an eight. I would say a seven point five to an eight. And this is strictly eight. listeners' standpoint, fan people who spends most of their time going to buy records. Uh huh. I think the seven point five is. The catchiness of the songs, but if I'm in my car and I can't think of anything to listen to, I don't think about this album. Mm-hmm. Or if I'm like, or if I'm like, you know, trying to trying to introduce like, you know, I have two kids. I'm a dad. If I'm trying to introduce my kids to something, I did I did bring out this album because my son started taking a liking to, you know, more rock and roll type stuff or like more stuff in this this genre you know this realm and they're like oh this and this you might like this album but i also did that with you know older even older stuff um so what's your rating that's what i'm saying it's like a 7.5 because i would listen to the pixies or the replacements or even for me i'm a huge fan of sonic youth so i would listen to those first Mm-hmm. I would. Those would be my more go-to. Like, oh, I'm gonna pull this record off the shelf and put this on. 
you know, to do something to. Like this one, I don't know if it's because the turning point of my age, like turning 21 that year, I don't know if there's like some weird holding, something holding me back from being like, oh, this is the greatest record. You know, for like Master of Puppets is a much greater album for me. That came out when I was 15. Mm. And that's still one of my favorite albums of all time. Slayer's Rain and Blood came out the same year. To me, Rain and Blood is far superior album. Totally, you have to totally be into that genre of music to get through. You know, mm. a 50-year-old listening to Rain and Blood in the morning scares people. <laughs> you know, but it's like, I don't know if it's because, you know, it's like those milestones of your life that you kind of like go back and reference to. So you're, you're 16, you're, you know, when this comes out, you're at that, you're at the same time for me as Rain and Blood and Master of Puppets. Yeah. Like what other albums came out this year that you hold more dear than this one? Not much. I mean, because I was, I was already listening to like older stuff too, but I remember being a fan of like, like at the same time, or maybe shortly after being a fan of like Fishbone, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, um, seeing a lot of these bands, even like Primus, but I don't listen to any of those anymore. Like none of that stuff holds up to me where I don't, I don't wanna listen to those records. I don't go looking for this record either, but it just holds a different place because of where it's almost like a bar was set because of that record. Another thing though, why we probably don't listen to it that or reference it is because you have to think about too, the oversaturation, like for years, and you probably, depending on where you go and spend your time, you can still hear a lot of these songs. Like you can't, you, you can't, where are you gonna hear any song off of Master Puppets in public? Unless it's the- It has to be a heavy metal bar. Unless it's the guy or pulling a, up next to you in his Camaro. Well, the only place I would say it would be like a monster truck rally. But that's what I'm saying. Like A UFC fight. You, you can go to Whole Foods <laughs> yeah. and hear a Nirvana song yeah. still. You can go I to wonder, Urban Outfitters. So I think that it was oversaturated. Got it. I wonder if there's Muzak versions. I've never heard an elevator version of. I know I'm that, sure there is. I know for a fact. Yard probably has to have yeah, a Muzak. Version. I know for a fact they have the Rockabye Baby version. What's that? It's it's baby baby babyfied versions of albums. They do mm. Radiohead. I know they did Nirvana. They do a lot of it's the Beatles, mm. but basically they make it into baby chimes. Uh-huh. And they definitely have Nevermind as one of that because I did I played that for the kids when they were babies. Mm. Um, but but yeah, I it's definitely a must own. It's definitely something that should be in your collection, you know. And it's definitely something to dust off and go back. It's almost thirty years. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Thirty years. Um, are we wrapping it up? Well, I wanted to add, so, you know, there's the secret track that's on there. Um, and we were names. talking about that, how I was trying to do some research. It's definitely not the first secret track on CD, but I can't find one that's earlier, but there's, um, that song, her majesty on Abbey road, it, which I was doing research. That's one of the earliest like secret tracks. Okay. And, um, just, just in the standpoint of of uh, a secret track being a secret track, because the one that the Nirvana has, it's actually a song, and that song sounds like the Melvins. Totally. If anything, that sounds like a leftover from Bleach, possibly. That definitely sounds more like something you hear on Bleach, but 
to me, it's a Melvin song through and through. Yeah, but yeah. that's that's probably a leftover. Probably, you know? yeah. I mean, a lot of times when you go make records, it's like sometimes you might not have all the songs. You have something left over that didn't make it on the last record. Right. Sometimes it's even songs that you had before the first record, but they just didn't, couldn't cut it. Um, but kind of in summation, like, like uh, them being influenced by like the Pixies that just just those just those perfect pop songs with an edge like i think the pixies didn't get enough credit as as they as they as they should have while they were really existing in their prime like they could have they should have been way bigger they should have been like in my mind almost kind of like america's like answer to the smiths or something just with like their song craft their influence like or like an echo on the bunnyman at least yeah like they were they should have been huge yeah. um I mean, they, they're still one of my favorites um definitely but they had that like they had that sound where it was like it's the pixies and i think this album this nirvana album like like i said like it's not that they're not wearing certain influences on their sleeve but it still sounds like them um right i think that they were listening to a lot of replacements and the wipers for that other like like what the pixies how they sound like the Pixies is more like the what's that song the not Polly Wanna Cracker but like the the one baby two another says I'm lucky to met you whatever song that that's is emblem. it's all do 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 that's like that's that's total Pixies it's yeah. like singing happy go lucky singing with just the bass rolling no but guitar. distorted guitars yeah. like you know like a lot of the Pixie stuff is like punk rock in the way that like Paraubu was punk rock where yeah. it's more about the concept um not necessarily let's just play fast and loud and hard you know right um but and then like the Beatles like with with them that that song too that we just mentioned that's kind of like I want to hold your hand to me like the 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 vibe of the song right 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 um but another thing that I like love about Nirvana's legacy is some of the stuff when they just started getting overblown and okay now you guys are going to be on every talk show and this like I think they botched some of their performances on purpose where I think they were supposed to play certain songs like they were supposed to play lithium but then they played something else like that's awesome because they basically were like no we're not going to be told every single thing that we're supposed to do and that's kind of like like the replacements being banned from Saturday Night Live. Like, yeah. you know, the guitar, like, uh, what's his name? Uh, Bob Stinson's wearing a dress and they're all wasted. And they, they, they went and like shat in Lorne Michaels, you know, in his desk or were like all these things like the antics that, that was like picked up on, like they're shooting themselves in the foot when they're trying to get to the top. Right. And I think that, Nirvana doing some of those same steps is kind of cool where it's not just, you know, like, like, oh, you can't make any mistakes and you just have to follow the rules. And, you know, um, I think that's just chicken shit. Like it's, it's like, it's supposed to be, you're supposed to be rebelling against something. You're, you're playing music because you don't fit in with regular society and you can't just go be a normal person because you're all fucked up. So when they give you more and more normal things in your world now that you're a part of, it's like to still rebel against that. I think that's what separates like the people that are paying for it all because they really don't know shit about music. They just know about numbers. And I think that that wasn't lost 
And I think it's cool. I think, I mean, I think Oasis did that too in their way, in their time, and they were huge. But nowadays it seems like for the most part, if you want to do things and you just have to, you have to like follow these, this, this set of rules or whatever. You get trotted um, around like a show pony, but you know that going into it. Yeah. Or you do your shtick of, oh, we're going to do everything to piss people off. And then people could just see that a mile away and right. be like, well, this is like pussy riot. Like, oh, well, do you even have or any even really, Kanye West? You might have something to say, but where's the musical merit? And right. I think these guys with this album in particular, and that's why I rate it so high is that they actually did. Yeah, that's true. I, I could see that point for sure. Definitely. Um, one of the things that we touched upon, or one thing that made me curious was the detuned bass that, Chris Novoselic is playing, which basically gave us our idea for the next record that we want to talk about, which is going to be Nine Inch Nails' Pretty Hate Machine. Um, so that'll be episode two. I don't know when that's going to come out, <laughs> whenever we have time to get together. Uh, we've been trying to do this for a little bit now. Uh, hopefully you liked it. Leave us comments. Thank you. Yeah. That was over.